This is Nathaniel Cogley. And this is Eric Morrow. Welcome to this week's edition of Cogley and Morrow on Politics. We're glad you could join us. A little rusty there. Uh, Coming out of last week, I I think I'm still recovering from doing a whole show myself. Well, Eric, I was impressed. You did a 53-minute one-man show, so that was very impressive. And it was a very fine show. If people get a chance, you talk about lack of civility and also Brexit, two topics that are great that kind of were overshadowed by the presidential processes here in America, also the impeachment processes. So that was a great show. I enjoyed listening. Well, well, thank you. I enjoyed doing it. I looked forward to it all week and uh, putting it together and trying to kind of build on uh, some of the the critical issues that are, are b- really below the surface. I mean, they're visible in some way, but in terms of the broader discussion, I mean, so much is focused on the politics of the race and not so much on some of these larger issues of what does this mean in terms of the direction of our democracy and the uh, how presidential campaigns have an impact on uh, uh, people's engagement with politics. Uh, so I, I very much enjoy doing the show. We, we come back this week. I mean, we're going to back up a little bit because we've had two very significant primaries, significant or well, caucus in a primary, significant not so much in terms of delegates to the national convention right. and, and so forth, but the impact on, on the race has been very, very substantial. And so we, we were looking back at, at, at one, a caucus that kind of uh, went awry, uh, that got out of hand in terms of uh, the, the preparedness of the Democratic Party in Iowa to be able to uh, handle a, a, a breakdown in, in the process and in their use of technology this time, uh, but still something that did have an impact and then followed immediately by, or a week later, by the New Hampshire primary, uh, which again, uh, there was a balanced approach in some outlets where you were you, you watch this and they go, well, you know, these, these don't have that much effect. Certain campaigns were saying, well, we're looking beyond this, uh, but but. We're, we're seeing that these really did have an impact. They certainly did. And, um, you know, we, we had mentioned in our show two weeks ago that Iowa is always full of surprises. And we were trying to think what in the results is going to be surprise. And, and we put some stuff out there. The surprise we didn't anticipate is no results. Right. <laughs> that, was, yes. that was the surprise we didn't anticipate. Right. But we knew that there would be surprises. So before we get into the candidates and their current positionings following Iowa and New Hampshire, I'm kind of curious some thoughts about the debacle in Iowa, the failure to deliver results in a timely manner, the kind of the lack of faith that's been brought into it, the finger pointing between the Democratic Party of Iowa and the National uh, Party. Uh, what does this mean for the long-term role of the Iowa caucuses, that it was, was kind of messy this cycle? Well, I think I alluded to this a little bit last week, that Iowa, uh, the Democratic Party and the caucus method here was really the loser mm-hmm. uh, in the race because of the delayed results, uh, the challenges in overcoming the technological snafus, and then how it was handled and communicated. I mean, on so many levels, this was uh, just uh, uh, so challenging. And so I think the, the long-term effect, or short-term effect, let's go there first, is does Nevada, which does also use a caucus system, right. has already made some changes uh, to the way that they're going through their process so that some of the things that happened in Iowa will not be repeated. I mean, another loss in this was the use of technology, uh, because uh, technology was being tried in terms of the reporting process. It evidently was not tested like it needed to be. Uh, and that just whole system broke down. And so I, I think it, it, it really was uh, uh, such a strong negative that, however, as we're already seeing and as the news cycle is shifting, is going to be covered over very quickly. It, this ramp up to the next two primaries and to Super Tuesday, I mean, this is going to be lost in the dust, I think, on the short term. Now, it'll come back up again when uh, people look to you know, four years from now and beginning this process again and then look back and say, okay, are they going to do this again in this way? But but I think the, the, the short-term effect is, is much more on – uh, how we transition from late Iowa results into New Hampshire, uh, because this combined, we, we haven't haven't seen this before. You usually have your Iowa results, and then candidates are building on that going into New Hampshire. You also saw how the candidates handled it. Did they get out in front of it mm-hmm. or not? And it benefited those that did. Uh, 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 first, the Buddha judge who got out in front of it right away, even though the results well, were he not out. Victory, right? right? He did. He did, and uh, and that was. I think that that helped him. I think it did. I think it got him out there in front and out there first, 
uh, followed by Sanders. Klobuchar got out there first right, and right, actually got yeah. a lot of national attention, being the only right, the first one right, to speak. Which, which helped her as well yeah. in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. although she was polling much better in New Hampshire than she did in Iowa. Uh, so I think there, there there's a short-term impact there. I think we'll see the longer-term impact when this comes back around again and, and those who are very closely engaged with it, either within the party structure or the people of Iowa or even presidential campaigns are going to look at it and put it under tremendous scrutiny as to how well Iowa is prepared uh, to uh, conduct their, what, caucus? Or could it be a primary? Uh, could, exactly. they, could they change uh, in the next cycle? So that's what I think is is might be some of the impact. You know, the whole caucus process has been under attack in recent years. If you go back in previous democratic cycles, up to 14 states were using caucuses. It's now down to four, Iowa, Nevada, North Dakota, and Wyoming. And not only that, there's been pressure on them to change how they do caucuses. This was the first cycle that Iowa had to report the first vote not just state delegate equivalents, but actually report the first vote. Well, that's starting to look like a little primary, right? And also the, uh, the other caucuses are doing some early voting. And they're also allowing for satellite caucuses, which aren't actually people in a physical room. You know, So they're doing all these things that move them closer to actually just the primary vote. And the whole idea of the system of caucuses in the modern age is going to be challenged here. I don't think the Democratic Party wants to upset the people of Iowa too much. It is actually a swing state that went Obama and then went Trump. And so it is a state that both parties would like to keep in their good graces. But the system, the system of having a caucus. And if Iowa was a primary, how would New Hampshire (laughs) allow them to go in front of them? New Hampshire loves to be the first primary. Right. right? right. So all this is up in the air. But the whole system of caucuses, I think, is going to be challenged more than before. Right. I, I think the outcome of that uh, argument that New Hampshire, which has that so much ingrained in their identity, uh, might win out on that because uh, uh, they said, well, we, we didn't mess up. We're not the ones that right. are, are to blame here for what happened in Iowa. Well, they even have in the New Hampshire state constitution a state constitution clause that says they primary has to be a week before any other state holds a similar contest. So, I mean, if Iowa tries to have a primary before them, New Hampshire goes in front and, you know, we could see all that competition. Could go all the way to the Supreme Court. <laughs> we could, could see it. Could go back in time, yeah. <laughs> yes. Could go back in time. So, uh, that mess will be interesting. The impact on the caucus system will be interesting. But now, after two contests, we really um, can see how it's affected some of these campaigns. And we had made a prediction two weeks go on our show um, that although Joe Biden has the great resume of a two-term vice president, um, Joe Biden led in national polls for a long time, neither of us were predicting he was going to be successful. Uh, So we have a clip from two weeks ago. We made a prediction on Joe Biden. AJ? I have no shame in my prediction (laughs) game. I'm (laughs) going to predict Joe Biden does not win these Iowa caucuses. This is the beginning of the wheels falling apart. Um, he needs to do well, and I'm just not thinking he's going to do well. He was head in the Iowa polls for a long time. Now it's like a dead heat for the polls, and he, him with Sanders, Warren, and Buttigieg near the top of these polls. Yeah, I, I think I think you're correct on this. I, I I would join you in that prediction. I don't make predictions very often, but uh, uh, that that he's not going to win. All right, Eric, we shouldn't congratulate ourselves, but we we did all right there. Um, Not only did he not win these, he came in fourth place in Iowa with 14.9% of that first round vote. And then he tanked. He went. He came to fifth place in New Hampshire with only 8.4%. Mm-hmm. He didn't even stick around to do his victory cel- quote-unquote victory celebration in New Hampshire. He was down to South Carolina by then. It looks like desperate times for the Joe Biden campaign. What do you think, Eric? Uh, I think it is. It, it really showed in, and I listened to his uh, post-New Hampshire speech in South Carolina, and, and really it was more of a campaign speech toward the people of South Carolina. And it was about uh, really focused on his record. It was focused on all of these different policy areas and issues he's dealt with, his foreign policy experience. Uh, I mean, it was just a litany uh, uh, with a focus on uh, all of these 
credentials that he has uh, to be president. And what concerned me when I heard it, and I put it up against and listened to it, I listened to Klobuchar, I listened to part of uh, 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 Pete Buttigieg's uh, a speech following New Hampshire, and, and one of the challenges that he has had in the past and he has now is – his ability to connect with people uh, with a with a kind of a thematic message at, at really at this point in the campaign. He struggled with this before in, in, in previous times, and that is because he he really he knows policy. He does he knows government. He knows sure. policy. His entire life, his career has been uh, dedicated to that. And the challenge with that though is that when he gets in these can in this campaign mode, it's not about people uh, the the likability it's not about presidential it's kind of what we're seeing now when you have such a crowded field as people are trying people out you, you certainly have a base of supporters in every area but but he goes off into these policy areas that are sometimes very technical complex and i think he loses people or people to try to engage with them and just can't at this point uh, because it is such a wide field and there are other options. So the impact of Iowa and New Hampshire, when you have so many people who are still shopping, they're not settled on a candidate, was that, that they gravitate away from that and they gravitate more to candidates like seeing Klobuchar, seeing um, – uh, judge, and then Sanders to a certain extent, although Sanders gets off in policy a little bit, but he does it, his rhetorical style and the way that he brings it into kind of his thematic approach to the campaign is is very much like like the others, and that is that that they're focused on some element. It's it's focused on change. It's focused on uh, meeting the, the needs of a certain population. It's on uh, contrasting themselves in terms of their uh, who they are and how they present themselves over against uh, President Trump. Those are the things that are that are engaging with people at this point, not so much the the, the details of, of policy. Now on a, on a macro scale, yes, if you're not for um, uh, 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 health care for all or, or free tuition for all and th- those those can have an impact. But the impact on a broader level in the way Joe Biden is approaching his campaign and the way he's trying to engage with people is just not being effective. Yeah, and I'm sure he had a prime and and he was better in his prime. And just watching him in this cycle, he was not in his prime. The no malarkey tour was not really convincing me. Um, I saw that debate in New Hampshire uh, that happened between the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire, and I just thought it was a horrible performance. I mean, he was angry. He was yelling, here's the deal. I'm the one. I'm the one. And it was just like, he, he was just really out of touch. And if you saw him in some of these town halls, you know, people would ask him a question he doesn't like, and he'd like challenge the people to fights, to push up contests. He called some woman a dog-faced pony liar or so, some weird uh, phrase. Yeah. I don't yeah. get... And I just, uh, I just knew that a lot of his national poll lead was name recognition you know not everyone pays attention like like we're paying attention uh, uh some people will pay attention the last week when it's time to vote and so if they're presented with a poll months in advance you know who are you a democrat are you gonna vote yeah okay well who do you like from the list well there's there's two-term vice president joe biden on there but in the last week when they start paying attention and bringing up clips and watching debates he just mm-hmm. was not ready to capture people's enthusiasm right and i think that's now starting to have an impact on even African-American voters, the tying himself to, to President Obama, which he did regularly in this speech uh, after the New Hampshire primary, that has had a benefit to him. But now as he campaigns more and he struggles with the campaign and he struggles with communicating on, on the debate stage as well as at these, these events, uh, that's, that's starting to erode because people are starting to think, hey, there are other options that are performing strong and that, that have messages. W- what are they saying? And, and beginning to kind of look at other candidates. Yeah. And he certainly is, is getting down to South Carolina. He feels like that's a state he can do well very large African-American population, but you're correct, his polls are coming down 
across the board. Um, it's good for him that Kamala Harris is out, Cory Booker's out, other people who could do well with that demographic. But he's not a lock for South Carolina. He's now competing there. His numbers right. are coming down. Some of the people who are surging are coming up. And the, there is a billionaire in this race, Eric. His name is Tom Steyer. Yeah, so right. yes. everyone knows Michael Bloomberg's right. going to start competing on Super Tuesday. But Tom Steyer, who's got one and a half billion, not 50 billion, one and a half billion, still much better than me, I might mention. Right. Uh, he's put a record amount of resources into South Carolina. He's spending more in South Carolina than anyone's ever spent in history. $14 million in ads, 93 staffers, and all the polls indicate he's double digits in South Carolina. Not that he's going to win it or be the nominee, but he's going to affect that primary. And right. so the idea that Biden still can hang on by winning South Carolina, it sounds like Jeb Bush four years ago, South Carolina was the last stand and it didn't work. Right. And, and, and that's what's going to be so critical about these next few weeks leading up to Super Tuesday. Uh, where is Biden in all this? Where does he end up? And and we have to realize, too, that, that Biden, while he uh, has resources, he's not been collecting resources that are sustainable, say, like Elizabeth Warren and others that are using uh, online uh, methods where people are just having it taken on a regular basis and, and, and keeping resources coming into the, into the pool. It's also been Mike Bloomberg out there engaging with Democratic, major Democratic donors, telling them not to give to uh, to, to Biden or to him, but right, to, to, to wait. Yeah, say, <laughs> but say, Biden needs it. My, yeah. Biden needs it. And, yeah. and, and the critical issue here is not uh, whether Biden can hang, hang on uh, uh, because he has resources that he can continue to put in. He has limited amount of resources. And the, the, the worse he performs, uh, the, the more challenging it's going to be for him to have the resources to continue this on past uh, Super Tuesday. I don't know if he wants to uh, embarrass himself with a poor showing in South Carolina. So he might not make it there. I mean, right now he's still in it. Right now he's trying. But we'll see how that shapes up. So I don't want to go out of order, really, but we're going to because we made another nice prediction two weeks ago on the show about someone who's kind of been off the radar but was positioning herself to have this moment. Uh, can we play the Klobuchar prediction, AJ? Mm -hmm. So I just have my eyes on Amy Klobuchar. She does need to do well. Right. Signs are indicating she just might do well. She what might, are your thoughts on might, her? I, yeah. I think that could, be, that could definitely be a surprise if she is not second or, or if she ends up second or wins. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think this is, she's close enough. All right, Eric. So she did not come in first or second, but she did well. And she's starting to get some attention, some momentum. She came in fifth place in Iowa, 12.7%. That was higher than had been polling. And then a week later into New Hampshire, she came in third place getting better of Biden and Warren at 19.8%. That's a great number for her. She's starting to get some national attention. Uh, I'm trying not to say I told you so too much, but you were on board too. You just thought one or two is what she needed, but she still is doing very well with a fifth and and third place showing. Right. And in New Hampshire, if you look at the the numbers and the the how close Buttigieg and Sanders are, you could almost say she was second because they, the two of them together, you know, in terms of their total total votes, that out of the rest of the pack, you know, she's right up there with them following. Oh yeah, she's uh, following so Iowa, yeah. right, yeah. right. And so, uh, so yes, I think this is a, a surprise. This is a a benefit uh, very much to her campaign. What was needed because probably a poor performance in New Hampshire might, might have ended uh, her bid. And now there's that momentum to go on. Uh, even some have suggested. Suggested, uh, did an interview earlier this week, uh, people talking about, well, would she be a vice presidential pick? And I think what factors in here, certainly she has those presidential aspirations. That's what her, her goal is in uh, the, the, the run in the primary. But it's also critical when you start looking at candidates that, that are performing well that were not expected uh, in terms of strategy if they do end up dropping out of the race and who do they align themselves with who who do they uh, direct their supporters to uh, that are with with plenty of race left to go and I think that's that's going to be very critical uh, if if in these next few primaries leading into Super Tuesday, she does not perform as well. Now, the surprise again would be if she continues this kind of upward climb where she is competitive uh, with uh, Buttigieg and Sanders at this point. 
yeah, and I've heard this talk about she might be a good VP choice. I actually think um, that's very plausible, um, especially in a brokered convention scenario. You know, the VP does not need to be someone running for president. Right. We saw Michael Pence picked. We saw Dick Cheney picked. Um, Sarah Palin picked. But um, it in a brokered convention scenario where you got to make a deal, you know, you got it helps to bring delegates to the table right. so that the ticket maybe had a majority of delegates, not necessarily one particular. So, and I agree, and, and I call Minnesota a swing state. I actually called it on air a swing state, and someone sent me an email. They said, Minnesota hasn't gone Republican in a long time. And I didn't mean swing state in historical terms, like it's been swinging back and forth, but uh, Clinton beat Trump by 1.5%. It was the sixth closest state. And what I mean by swing state is it's going to be focus of both campaigns and it could help swing the result. Mm -hmm. And so Minnesota being a swing state, the politics of Minnesota being good national politics to run on. Uh, she's, you think about her campaign versus Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris blew 50 million, didn't even make it to a state. Klobuchar has much less money and has timed this and managed this very well. I do think she might be a good VP pick. I'm just not going to counter out for the nomination right. yet, given the other alternatives. It's one thing when you dig into her record, she is a winner. She has won in Minnesota by huge numbers, even when the seat was vacant. She has not had close elections. She has not had a defeat. She has won. And she's come to this thing to win it. And if there were other people who I thought, you know, had the stronger campaign and were better positioned to unify the party, I might not because I could see some areas where the campaign could be a little stronger. But given the alternatives, she might. She might be the ticket, especially when you come to a broker convention and you need someone that is able to pull this party together. She might be the one. She may be. And and listening to her, the the really the fight in her, the yeah. uh, the the resolve. I mean, it very much came through after it it, it, it was as much a victory speech right. on uh, following the New Hampshire primary as Buddha Judge. Uh, mm -hmm. Because her, her, not only with her supporters there, but just in terms of what she was saying, uh, her, the connections that she was making, uh, I've I've heard also in some interviews that have been conducted, uh, you know, some uh, people calling in that had talked about uh, looking at her as a serious candidate, and and the reasons why they were doing that, and I think when people start examining more in depth um, how they're aligning with the candidate and what attracts them. Uh, to someone, uh, she becomes very attractive in that way as, as a as a uh, as a potential nominee for the party, and so uh, she she has that going for her, and it's going to be interesting to see how that carries into these next few primaries. Yeah, because she spent a lot of time in Iowa and was parlaying that to New Hampshire, but you know we're going to go through a lot of states quick. Is she going to be able to do well? I just I just take that campaign very serious right. at yes. this point. I agree. Uh, someone else who's done very well, Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana. So uh, he has had great performances here. He was second place in the votes in Iowa, but first place in the delegates coming out out of Iowa, another quirk of their caucus system. So he's kind of a tie up there out of Iowa. And he came in a very close second place in New Hampshire with 24.4% of the vote, a very strong performance. He has great money. He's been a great campaigner. Um, you have to, at this point, Eric, take the Pete Buttigieg campaign seriously. He's top two in Iowa, New Hampshire. He's racking up delegates. He's racking up money. His name recognition is very high. Hi, Mom. Uh, Mom likes him in San Francisco, right? I mean, no one knew the mayor of South Bend, and now he's got name recognition throughout the USA. I just don't know that I see this mayor in his 30s, given some of the challenges he would, camp he would have at a national level, um, being the party's nominee in this cycle, I think he's done very well for himself. And this is a campaign to take serious as he starts to win states and win delegates. But what's next for Pete Buttigieg here? He's had a great run on two states. Um, potentially he could be the nominee. I'm just still skeptical. What do you say? Well, I think as the attention begins to turn more and more to him, it's it's there's the benefit in that we see all across the, the country in polling that he is 
his, he's gaining. I mean, he's, he's gaining ground wherever he may be. Now, that's very different from where he was positioned in uh, the Midwest and the Northeast compared to Texas coming sure. up on Super Tuesday, where he's really at the bottom, and even I think though he'll he's stay rising. There. Yes, yes. And so that's the big question is how, how he'll, will he do when we move into uh, the southern states yeah. uh, where he's not as known? Um, the other thing I think that comes to question here, and this will lead into uh, what we'll talk some about as well as uh, with the Bloomberg factor, is his level of experience. If if Biden remains in and you have Sanders and depending on what Warren, uh, where, where she is in this, she seems to be fading at this point. But you put Bloomberg up there as a mayor uh, of a mm-hmm. uh, of, of a of a very large a complex city uh, as a multi-billionaire as well. But the, con- the, the challenge and concern gets into experience. And, and when people start to look and the debate turns to experience and how uh, that experience contributes to being in this office, I think that's where Buttigieg uh, may begin to struggle. Some not not that he can't respond. He's a very eloquent speaker. Oh, that's his strength. Uh, he, he he's very he communicate he connects he's very good with people. Communicator. He does. Yeah. He, he connects uh, uh, very well with with and the rhetoric, a flowery language about right. values and faith right. and yes. generations and, and compelling. He gets you to to think, wow, that guy's pretty quick and clever. You right. know, yeah. right? But that but that doesn't carry over into uh, always to winning a primary. It doesn't always carry over into. Uh, winning, winning the presidency when uh, you're going toe to toe with with people who have extensive experience and can communicate that as well. And that's if we were to look across, and if it was Buttigieg against Biden, well, I think uh, Buttigieg could walk away with the debate just right. simply with the way that that Biden approaches. But you put Bloomberg in there, and I think that changes it. And so I, I'm really on this one. I'm holding out until we get Bloomberg on the debate stage and see that that dynamic and where it goes with those specific questions that deal with kind of hard policy questions and and how experience contributes to to addressing those. Some people tune in, watch the debates, and they go, well, that guy won the debate. I'm going to vote for him. And the only thing is we're not selecting a debater-in-chief. We're selecting a commander-in-chief. And the resume, the experience that you talk about is very important. Now, uh, Buttigieg will say he's the one who served in the military, actually. He's the only one on the stage who served, and he's going to have a good point there. But you talk about the difference of South Bend mayor of South Bend versus mayor of New York City. New York City has more population than many states, you right. know, and governor's always been a good resume. Uh, mayor of New York City, that's a big, complicated place, a big population. Uh, yeah, so Buttigieg is one to watch. He's doing things. He's making things happen. He's got following. He's got money. I think we're just both skeptical at this right. point. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I think the there the, there will be a lot of comparisons made as as the field narrows that look at experience and and put one against the other and and like you're saying with uh, Bloomberg's experience in New York, the fact that he was a was a popular mayor, he they changed the city charter for him to be elected to a third, a third term. term yeah. I mean, there, there there's going to be some things there that he's going to bring into the conversation. It reminds me of African no, no, no. politics a little right. bit. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but 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 it also it, it also shows or it it it, it uh, puts the spotlight uh, I think on something that is critical that that the people who are looking at these candidates and trying to make decisions have to factor in uh, and that is that we're not choosing someone that that you you can say well I like that person or I uh, I can connect with that person even though we know that has a lot of influence we're really making a serious decision here about the person that is going to lead the executive uh, of our country uh, for the next four years at least. And and so I think that is going to present some very challenging issues and questions that Buttigieg is just not going to have the background uh, to rely on. I think we both agree. And of course, there's uh, a couple more people to talk about here. And the big one, Bernie Sanders. What a movement, Eric. This There was a question there for a moment. Um, Would Elizabeth Warren outflank him on the left side? It appears that she was not able to do that. 
Bernie Sanders coming in first place in Iowa in terms of votes, second place in delegates, and coming in first place in New Hampshire with 25.7%. That's a pretty good start to the voting for him. And I just know a lot of his his followers, a lot of people who support him, they love the guy. They think he's determined. Uh, they think he's sincere. Uh, I was out in San Francisco a while ago and driving my car, turned on San Francisco radio. Some people apparently think he's a good matchup against Trump and can beat Trump. I don't share that, but some of his supporters think, yeah, Bernie all the way, Bernie all the way. And uh, we also see not only has he done well, um, he's got a movement and it's got a lot of young energy, huge support amongst young people and the left flank of the party. I'm just still skeptical that he'll be the nominee. I don't think he'll be the nominee. I think if he starts to be first place, you're looking at a broker convention and them trying to work their way around him being the nominee. He's so different as an avowed socialist with this radical agenda. I don't think the party wants to go in that direction. And the challenge for the party is how to deny him the nomination and still keep his supporters on board the eventual candidate. This is very difficult for the Democratic party. We see the fraction really strong here. Right. I, I agree with you. I think uh, when you look at the numbers and the data as well in terms of the turnout and his base of support, so he's following a similar pattern that he did in 2016. The The base of support has not grown significantly. It's just that there are so many other candidates that are, that are pulling votes in different ways. It's just hard to determine uh, the strength of that at this point. But but as we, kind of, as we look ahead, so one thing that, that uh, uh, concerned me is, is especially we look at, at Texas and we're coming up with Super Tuesday and rank and file Democrats across the state of Texas are, are still much more economic conservatives than their counterparts on right. the, on the national level. And so uh, my initial thought was, well, Sanders is just not going to, to do well, but however, Iowa and New Hampshire have already given him a bump in the polls where he's ahead of Biden. Uh, the thing that that's happening here though, is that the number of, of su- the amount of support that's peeling off of Biden has now put Biden and Bloomberg even uh, just behind Sanders. And so I don't know that the shift, if you look at it comparatively, that while he's gotten a significant amount of tension on the national level for what he's doing, it's still tracking that same pattern, which if it goes in that direction, I'm with you. I think it's a brokered convention. If, if he's not surpassed by, say, a Bloomberg or another candidate, uh, that that it becomes very challenging. And to go through what they did again uh, only gives, just like Iowa did, ammunition to the Trump campaign to just kind of deride Democrats and say they just can't get their act together. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, to to uh, And so we'll, we'll see. I think they have to be thinking about that now at the national level, uh, the Democratic Party, to say, how are we going to navigate this based on where we are in the race at this point. Yeah, and four years ago when he had that very impressive movement already going, the establishment uh, and the moderates were rallying around Hillary Clinton. So the, the opposition to him was consolidated. And just right now, it's not really clear Who's it going to be to rally the establishment, the moderates? Is it going to be the Buttigieg or a Klobuchar or a Bloomberg, right? It's not clear. And so as long as that remains fractionalized, Bernie has this great opportunity to pick up a lot of delegates, a lot of states by having a plurality, by winning them with 26, 28, 30%. That doesn't mean he has support from a majority of the party. It just means he has the most support. The opposition, the establishment opponents are fractionalized. And until the establishment starts to rally around someone and the moderate voters rally around someone, he's going to keep going and it's going to put a lot of people in panic mode. Right. Yeah, I I agree. I I think that's being tracked very, very closely uh, because that does have an impact on that outcome the closer that we move uh, to the convention. And I think we can also expect the Trump campaign to be kind of egging this on a little bit. Mm-hmm. They're cheating oh, yeah. Bernie. They're yeah. cheating Bernie. Right. Kind of making an appeal to Bernie supporters saying, hey, right. they're, they're cheating you guys, you know? Yep. Because actually, uh, on some issues, there's some alignment. Um, revisiting trade deals that send union jobs, that end union jobs and send them abroad. Uh, uh, production in countries without environmental standards or labor standards. These are things that can actually appeal to a Bernie-type supporter. So Trump's going to kind of help increase that wedge in the party. The last one we want to talk to talk about is Elizabeth Warren. She had led national polls for a while. She got a lot of attention. Um, 
we had been looking at her. Could she win? A, could she win one of these states? Maybe New Hampshire, which was one of her neighboring states. When I think about it, actually, the threshold for her was not to win one of these states, but to come in second. Because mm-hmm. this is going to be no, no one's going to run away with this. There's going to be a competition, likely consolidating around two. So if it was like Biden and her, then she would have outflanked Bernie. She could say she's the progressive alternative here. But if it was Sanders and her, she could say, "Hey, establishment, get on board me. I can unify the party." Top two is what she needed in Iowa, New Hampshire. She failed to do that. She was third place in Iowa, eighteen point five, a good number, but still third place. But then when it came to New Hampshire, she dropped quite a bit, to fourth place, 9.2% in a neighboring state, not a good showing at all. I think it's a matter of time before Elizabeth Warren has to hang it up. I think so. We, we saw initial decline, her decline begin when she went after Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And then that, that she got a little bit of a rebound from Iowa, but her debate performance uh, did not help her at all. And I think that that was very uh, really a key in going into the New Hampshire primary, that she had to have a good debate performance. And I think some of the others on the stage, like a Buddha judge, like a Klobuchar, and even Sanders himself, and of course, Biden with whatever, you know, whatever he did, but it, it, it crowded her out. And I think that did have an impact. And I think it, it caused people who would have been in either camp, depending on which candidate or where they supported, uh, to begin to shift and to, to give Sanders uh, the support that he received in that primary. Yeah, and now she gave out after New Hampshire the need for the party to unify, not fight amongst itself. She started some of these fights. She was like, Bernie said to me in private four years right. ago, some little comment that's probably spun out of perspective. She was herself engaging in some of these fights. You know, and that's politics. Things happen. Um, so if, if she makes it to Super Tuesday, you know, Massachusetts and Oklahoma, where she's from, uh, are actually Super Tuesday states. I just think that's real slim pickings at that point. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for her... You know, she might pick up some delegates, but she's probably not got momentum here. And then when, if she ever withdraws, where's that support going? A lot of times we've assumed it goes to Bernie, but I don't know. I think some of this would go to Amy Klobuchar. She's both, she's, uh, they're both uh, female senators. And if you look at these national polls, when she was initially coming up to first place, she was taking from Kamala Harris, who was receding at that time. And once she got to the top and started coming down, Pete Buttigieg was rising at that time. And, uh, you know, if the Warren campaign is going to come down, I just think some of this might settle on Klobuchar or some others in the race. Right. I think so. I think there's that since she made those remarks to Bernie Sanders, there's there's some animosity with supporters there. That's been very clear in some of the interviews that I've listened to that could lead them to say, okay, we can't go with Sanders. We're, we're going to choose another candidate. And Klobuchar does, seems like the, the more likely person that would receive that support. Yeah, very good. And so now we have some a uh, couple things to look at. we got Nevada coming up, South Carolina coming up. Um, any thoughts on what we should expect in these two? And then we'll talk Bloomberg after that. Well, I think we're seeing the impact of Iowa and New Hampshire on these two races. And so we're, we continue to see the rise. Sanders continue to rise in Nevada. He is already ahead of Biden with other candidates. Warren's placing in there as well. So I think it's going, Nevada's going to be an interesting one. It'll be impacted by the debate performance uh, that will be coming up soon. Uh, but then South Carolina. and South Carolina, when we look at the numbers there, uh, Sanders has remained steady. Uh, we see uh, uh, Warren uh, far down. Uh, yeah. Biden has dropped. I mean, he's lost like 12 percentage points in the polling since the beginning of the month. And so I think what we're looking at is this reshuffling. These next two are are reshuffling events in preparation for Super Tuesday. When people are watching these, if they're going to vote on Super Tuesday, yes, you've got a group of people that have made up their mind, but you've got many that haven't, as we've seen in these other primaries. And so I think this impact post-New Hampshire, post-Iowa is is realigning and, and, and shuffling uh, especially with the impact of Biden dropping like he is and not being really the chosen one in terms yeah, right. of the of the potential nominee and the assumption early on that okay well this belonged to Joe and that that he would he would remain hold steady you might lose a few primaries early on but then he would pick up and 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 move on and and so that the 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 question really lingering out there in all of this is, is Bloomberg I mean if you look at rise in in uh, in polling. 
he, he's rising more than any other candidate. Absolutely. And so that uh, and that it could be certainly a good thing. That's certainly good for his campaign and his strategy. That was a Super Tuesday strategy. But that will be another thing to monitor over these next few weeks leading up to Super Tuesday, uh, just to see where where he's going to land in this. Is it? This is the test of his strategy. If 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 something happens between now and then, and that that rise begins to falter, uh, then where do, where does he go from there? Uh, if it continues to go like it is, then you could say, well, he should be showing up probably in the top two or three, uh, and and then by Super Tuesday, what's the outcome there? Does that put him? firmly uh, with the leaders uh, in this primary. Yeah, and with Nevada and South Carolina, we have some nice spacing. So Nevada is going to do their caucuses on Saturday, February 22nd, 11 days after New Hampshire. And then South Carolina will have their primary on Saturday, February 29th, another week. These two states get special attention. The, the, the candidates are going to go there, campaign there. The voters there are going to be able to see them. But once we get to March 3rd, Super Tuesday, that's a huge wave of states. And that's where Bloomberg's, I mean, I, it was $200 million a while ago. I mean, he's, he's keeps spending more and more. These are very nice commercials um, that, that make him look attractive as an executive. And Super Tuesday is where that Bloomberg factor comes in. But Nevada and South Carolina will adjust this field even more going into Super Tuesday. Right. And I think another thing that we've got to be looking at is that we've not moved into a state yet that was... Uh, heavy Trump that that voted for Trump or went for Trump statewide, uh, and you have a, a population, and, th- and this is where I know some of this is circumstantial, but some of the interviews that I've heard of people who are going to Bloomberg rallies that there are people who are Republicans who will are not wanting to vote for Trump again, and they're looking for an alternative. And so I, I think we've got to see what what is that impact. Uh, we In Texas, we have an open primary system. That means that uh, you, it doesn't matter if you affiliate with a party or not, you can go vote in the Democratic primary or you can vote in the Republican primary. That has an impact. I, I remember back to the uh, Clinton campaigns when uh, someone that people may have heard of, Rush Limbaugh, was on the radio uh, advocating for Republicans to go vote against Clinton in the Democratic <laughs> primary in order to influence the the outcome. I don't see that happening here in terms of the the encouragement because there's not a strong candidate in front as of yet. Uh, but I do think there's an effect there. I think independent and uh, more uh, centrist Republicans that may say, okay, Trump's not my option. I'm, I'm looking for something else. Uh, they may be in that mix as well. And it'll be interesting to see since there's not a contested primary uh, to, you know, we know Weld's in there, but not polling, you know, against Trump, he'll be the nominee, uh, is to see if that has some impact as well. We're well, talking about some Republicans maybe going to a Bloomberg rally. That would be genuine support if they mind going. Trump had something very fun when he came out on the stage. He said, I heard some of you are going to vote in the Democratic primary for the weakest candidate. And he kind of egging it on and saying, I just can't figure out which one's the weakest, right? Yeah, so he was kind of right. teasing them. Um, but uh, you're saying there might be some genuine support for Bloomberg. But yeah, if he can attract independents and maybe some Republicans, that would make him well-positioned for these open primary states on Mm -hmm. Super Tuesday. We've talked about that before, but here's a list of them. Alabama, open primary. Arkansas, open primary. Colorado, open primary. Minnesota, open primary, but Klobuchar should do pretty well. Uh, Tennessee, open primary. Texas, the great state of Texas, open primary. Vermont, open primary, but Bernie should do pretty well. And then Virginia, open primary. Mm -hmm. So these are some states to look for where the Bloomberg strategy of massive television buys, open primary, independents and Republicans can show up, should be, uh, he should do pretty well. And that'll be exciting to watch. Right. I think it will be. And I think that's where, if people are really into this and watching the numbers, that's going to determine if that strategy not only works, but but if what the impact is of, of not only the money that he spent, but also uh, his viability as a potential candidate uh, that can draw the kind of turnout that is needed. Uh, the concern at this point, too, is that if this becomes contested, that the voter turnout on, for the Democrats is not as significant as it needs to be uh, because some peel off, like Sanders, where some went for Trump, 
Uh, some uh, didn't vote at all in the 2016 election, and that certainly had an impact on the outcome of that race. So is Bloomberg one of those types of candidates that may lose part of, of the party he's associating with in order to gain uh, more independence and possibly even some Republicans? What that shows in those numbers and in that direction for him is that we could very much see a repeat of what happened in 2016. I mean, we've talked about how turnout is critical oh, yeah. for any Democratic candidate to win, uh, especially against an, against an incumbent president. And just speaking of turnout, one of the other stories out of Iowa, New Hampshire, is actually Republican turnout. Um, Trump has better numbers out of the Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire primary than any incumbent president in history. Now, they're still lower than the Democratic side where the actual contest is and the energy is, but there's a lot of people showing up on the Republican side just to show their support for the president. So people that underestimate Trump's support in this country are going to be in for uh, an awakening. He's got a lot of support and it's showing up in these numbers. Right, yeah, the 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 popularity polls are, are, are moving in a certain direction, a positive direction, uh, economy. I mean, all of these factors are working in his favor. And that's why I thought it was unfortunate. There's been some states where the Republican Party in the state has decided not to do a contest for fear that it might go awry and, and pick someone else. I've never been worried about that. Right. Trump's got this not Republican nomination on lockdown. While some... Republican politicians have tense relationship with them. His support amongst Republican voters is very high. Right. I, I agree with that. I, I think it's, uh, 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 I just think that there's not that much attention is going to be paid to that. I think everyone, even the media, it's all that Trump has that nomination and it's going to see who can actually compete with him uh, on a number of different levels. And, and I think that, again, if we go back to Bloomberg for just a second with the Twitter exchange and what's been going back and forth, I think he's trying to show uh, to voters that he will do that if it if it means getting in getting down to a lower level to com to communicate back or to push back at him uh, he's going to do that yeah not all people pay attention to turnout but it can be the key yeah. to deciding <laughs> this election we'll be right back with the last segment right after this break for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on Politics. All right, Eric, now we look to some news that happened on Thursday. In the United States Senate, there was a joint resolution passed called um, Resolution 68, a joint resolution to direct the removal of the United States Armed Forces from hostilities against the Islamic Republic of Iran that have not been authorized by Congress. So if you go back a while, we talked about this strike that happened, not in Iran, in Iraq on January 3rd that killed Qasem Soleimani. He was a general in the Iranian military, and he's someone that's often been referred to as a state sponsor of terrorism. So for some people, he's a state actor. He's part of the Iranian government, Iranian general. But the United States has repeatedly referred to him as part of terrorism and supporting terrorist militias and stuff like that. Trump did a drone strike, took him out, and also some other uh, leaders of militias in Iraq that have been destabilizing in Iraq. And um, now we see the House passed something that was different, but it's interesting that the Senate, which is controlled by the Republicans, passed this resolution, which, quote unquote, um, Congress hereby directs the president to terminate the use of United States armed forces for hostilities against the Islamic Republic of Iran or any part of its government or military unless explicitly authorized by a declaration of war or specific authorization for use of military force against Iran. This was supported by all 47 Democrat or independent Democratic-leaning senators, and this was joined by eight Republican senators. Those are Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Susan Collins of Maine, Mike Lee of Utah, Jerry Moran of Kansas, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Rand Paul of Kentucky, Todd Young of Indiana. So what do you think when you see this kind of grouping of these 47 Democrats, these eight Republicans stand up and say, you know, the president should not proceed with hostilities against Iran? So there's a couple of things in looking at the motivations of coming back 
to this post-impeachment. So yeah. this was an issue that many people are probably past. They've not been tracking in terms of what's going on with Iran and following this. Uh, and so now we're coming back to it. Uh, and I think knowing the outcome that we're looking at it, that it that uh, with the possibility of a presidential veto and it not getting the support that it would need to override a veto, uh, you see names in there like Collins and Alexander. I think this is maybe some recovery for them. We know Alexander's mm-hmm. not running again, so I'm not mm-hmm. sure on, Collins, on that part, but yeah. Collins is. And so and Murkowski, uh, Murkowski as well, one. where you've got people who are maybe trying to recover, uh, knowing what they're... Or, or balance out. Uh, balance out, balance right. Out right. And, 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 and in, in terms of appeal to their constituency to show that, okay, well, I do have limits, uh, but going back and however they're messaging the impeachment and their role in it. So I think this may be, if, if, if knowing Mitch McConnell, I mean, yeah. seeing it, he, he's a grand strategist yeah. in all things political. Yeah. And, I'm, and, and I'm wondering if... The, you know, the, the, they knew this was coming, uh, how they handle it, how they provide an opportunity uh, for some of these Republican members. Of course, you know, Rand Paul's in the mix, but he's always going to be. Well, on he would genuinely like vote yes. for this no matter no the matter timing. What, right, right. But he, it's interesting you mentioned maybe the timing that McConnell, grand strategist, he wants to continue to be majority leader of the Senate, not minority leader. And so if he can help, you know, Collins win her reelection right. and, and other similar people do so, he's happy to help. And they'll be able to say that they balanced out their vote. They yeah, they supported Trump with not guilty in impeachment, but then they also went against him on this uh, war powers right, resolution. Right. Well, where that helps with uh, with Murkowski and Collins and and possibly others is that they're able to go back and say, look, we can work. There there's some concessions that we have to make at times, but we're looking out for the interest of the people of our state, and so you need us there to be able to do that because we are going to be in the majority party and we are going to 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 work and negotiate that where sometimes we do have to make concessions, we're going to get something out of that. Yeah, so, and this is a significant statement for the Senate to pass this with some bipartisan support. But you're right, it's going to be vetoed by the president. And the president would argue something like this lowers his leverage to negotiate with Iran, that this actually makes it more difficult. He'll also argue that he was not taking us to a war with Iran. This was an attack in Iraq on a terrorist, right? And that he did not escalate when he had a chance to escalate. The president has largely inherited this situation in the Middle East. He did not initiate any of these activities. In fact, he's been withdrawing from Syria. Uh, you know, Bush initiated Afghanistan and Iraq. Obama initiated Libya and Syria, right? And Trump has not initiated anything. And I think what's interesting about Trump's approach, I don't think he wants a full-blown war in the Middle East. He seems to be less ideal idealistic, like a Bush nation building democracy in the Middle East. And he seems to be more have this preventative strategy. He's inherited us over there. He's maybe not comfortable, but while we're over there, he wants to prevent certain negative outcomes. He wants to prevent ISIS forming. He wants to prevent Iran getting a nuclear missile, but he has no idealism to do a full-blown war for some ideal outcome. It's just about minimally holding what we have to prevent certain negative outcomes. Right. And I I think for Trump, what helps him is is he can say that it's working and to the degree that he wants it to and this approach and uh, what it accomplishes. There's not necessarily a, a long-term plan to resolve. It's, it's, it, it is prevention. It is how do we stop some of the factors that have caused challenges in that region for uh, decades uh, and but but stay and not be entangled in them to the degree that we have been and so his response to this is going to come back and and uh, watch the press conference with the veto or whatever is provided <laughs> with it of where he's saying uh, hey it's working what I'm doing is working yeah and he's going to be able to go to the election and say he didn't start a war you know this is uh, not what he's done also he's going to be he's going to get a lot of support from the American public for being tough on Iran I don't think the American public's going to look down on the strike against Soleimani or anything like that. So I'm not sure that this is going to be bad for him politically. It's certainly something he's tweeted about that he didn't appreciate. But I know what President Trump really wouldn't appreciate, and that's a democratically controlled Senate. So if this helps the Republican Party keep control of the Senate, uh, that would be a good thing for the president, even if he's not really comfortable with the language here. Thank you for joining us today. That's all the time we have on Cogley and Morrow on politics. Tune in each week at noon right here on KTRL FM 90.5 to hear politics discussion with civility and depth. 
This has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from AJ Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.